This is the Frog for Life podcast. I'm your host, Rob Berline. TCU gave me a sense of stability. Um, I look back on those times as while maybe in politics of our country, it was a rough time. I felt the security of TCU. That is the voice of Emmy Award-winning art director Barry Phillips. Barry will talk about his career in TV, his time as a judge on Miss America, and some very famous lineage in his family's history. And we are so excited to be joined by Barry Phillips. He is an Emmy Award-winning art director, so accomplished on the TV side and numerous other projects, and we're so thankful that you're joining us today, Barry. Good morning to all my TCU friends and family. First, I want to start off with what brought you to TCU when you decided to go to school here? Well, um, I lived, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and I had thought I would go to Baylor because my mother went to Baylor, and you just kind of do what your parents do, and I'd grown up going to Baylor homecomings and so forth, so I I really did not really think that much about it until um, I realized that Uh, TCU at the time gave scholarships to all the area high school graduates that graduated either valedictorian or salutatorian. And I was salutatorian at Burleson High School when I graduated. And so naturally, you know, being offered money to go somewhere, you, you go. And after I got TCU, after about a year, I applied for a Norton uh, fine arts scholarship, and I received one of the two that they gave that year. And that then was a full ride for the rest of, of my duration at TCU. And so you came to TCU and you were very successful here. You graduated magna cum laude uh, with a degree in art. So tell us about your TCU experience and what were some maybe some memorable stories that still stick out uh, to this day for you? <laughs> well, um, Of course, there's many, and you could look at that from uh, many angles. Uh, I think in relationship to what I ended up doing with my career, when I was a sophomore, I started taking an an illustration course uh, offered and taught by a man named Don Ivan Punchatz. He was a transplanted New Yorker. Uh, His wife was from Arlington. They had been in New York, and he was a very, very well-known uh, illustrator, designer in New York for years. But when they decided to come back to her home area, um, he decided to teach. And he started a studio called the Sketchpad Studio in Arlington. And he hired students to come in and work with him under his supervision, all the time I was taking a class from him, I was always already working for him as well. And I was 19 years old and working on covers of Time magazine, double page spreads for uh, Playboy magazine, um, full page illustrations for the Wall Street Journal or the London Times. And so it was a quick, fast start or jumpstart, you might say, into uh, the very top echelon of the illustration world in the U.S. Uh, We won several awards uh, while I was there, different members of the Sketchpad staff. 
at the New York Illustrator Show and so forth. And we were regarded, as I understand, as one of the better uh, illustration studios in the country. Of course, we did a lot of work uh, in Dallas for the agencies, Tracy Locke and so forth, the Bloom Agency. So I not only was introduced to the uh, editorial illustration world, but the corporate side of it as well, which was it's, it's two different worlds. So that is the first thing I think about when I think of my career and how it did get started uh, at TCU. And so you were working while you were a student, so you're trying to balance, were you trying to balance your homework and class studies with those professional uh, pursuits? Yes, you do. You, it's amazing how you find a, a way to do these things. Um, I was living back home in Burleson, so Arlington, uh, I would just jump in the car, drive 20 minutes, and be at the sketch pad. And uh, so many great people have come from the sketch pad um, years. Uh, Gary Panter, who was the production designer on uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, and so many. I could just name them off uh, one by one. and it, we got a good training from Don in the areas of really understanding the responsibilities that are coupled with being a good artist, which is being on time, meeting deadlines, um, expanding your visual boundaries as much as you can. And so did you find it as you were being both a, a student and working in Arlington, did that make the coursework seem harder because you were having to find time for it, or was it easier because you were already understanding some of the practical applications of the way of the theories and all those things? Well, I think it probably evolved everything. It would make it somewhat easier, but not easier in the sense less difficult, but easier to understand the primary concerns of the real real world of illustration. And, uh, you know, I would still try to retain myself in anything I was designing, anything I was concepting as an assignment. Um, I, you know, that that's an interesting question because you don't really know what it did for you because you didn't know what it was like not to do it. So I, I, you know, I just kind of blossomed, if you will, and, and bloomed more in the areas of finding out who I was as an illustrator and a designer. In high school in Burleson, I had a really great high school art teacher, and she instilled in me a lot of the fine art principles, uh, you know, of just things about color. Uh, we went out on Saturdays uh, painting. And so I took a lot of that experience of those three years of art in high school, then applied them to this newfound career in illustration and design, and kind of came up with the person that eventually became me. And so after graduating magna cum laude, what direction did your your life take? Did you go straight to the sketch pad, or, or what professional pursuits did you pursue? Well, I did continue to work in the summers at TCU, and then I was offered Uh, a teaching assistantship for my graduate work uh, at East Texas State University, which is now Texas A&M Commerce. At the time, East Texas State was probably, um, arguably, the best 
design school in the Southwest. Uh, they would win national shows one, two, three. And they had a very uh, well-known group of faculty members that were all devoted to their to their own particular craft of art. And uh, when I was asked to go there and teach, I was kind of flattered for one thing, but also relieved that I did not now have to pay for graduate school. And so I, at 21, I started teaching uh, in college. And a lot of the class was older than I was. And I'm sure they looked at me and thought, who is this? You know, what, what am I paying money for? But hopefully I, through the years, starting painting at 13, I, I did contribute something to their growth as an artist. But uh, the growth was, you know, it's in spurts. And it's, it's sometimes you feel like you're doing things. And then sometimes, you know, you think, gosh, I've got to reroute my thinking a little bit. But I did get my master's there and then continued to move um, into illustration either on my own or through the sketch pad before I moved to Los Angeles. Following Barry's time in Los Angeles, he came to Plano to work as an art director for the BBS show Wishbone. An art director primarily is in charge of everything visual. You have to think of color. You have to get the, the, the script down and interpret it emotionally. Uh, I try to do an interpretation of character for my art direction. My mentor in Los Angeles was a woman named Polly Platt, who was a production designer for her husband, then-husband, Peter Bogdanovich. She was designer of Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, What's Up, Doc, A Star is Born. And she became my mentor because I had fallen in love with the movie The Last Picture Show. At some point, it really reflected my life growing up in a small town in Texas. And uh, she helped me sort of straighten out my vision as to how an art director is still an artist, is still a business person. And I, um, I learned a lot from her through the years uh, as far as art direction goes. She asked me to work on terms of endearment. Um, I couldn't because I was non-union. And that hastened my move back to Texas, uh, which is a right-to-work state. And um, I did do that eventually after 10 years or so of being in L.A. I came back to my, my homeland to work uh, in television and film. And uh, sort of the first bat out of the box was our directing for Oliver Stone. And um, I uh, just jumped into it. It was trial by fire, but, you know, I survived. <laughs> and so when you're, when you're an art director for a show like Wishbone, for those that aren't familiar, I loved the show growing up. It was the, the, the dog that read books and was a character in the books, a fa fantastic show. So as an art director, that seems like it might be a little bit more difficult than just a pure set on a show like Friends or something because you have a little bit of an animation component to it. So how difficult is that to try to work with? Well, it I wouldn't necessarily call it animation, but there were a lot of visual effects that uh, enabled us to do the hunchback of Notre Dame, for example, and have it look like we were shooting in front of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris when actually we were in Plano, Texas. 
uh, green screen uh, was, you know, coming to the forefront in television. And we, we did a lot of things that um, television had not done uh, at the time uh, in the 51 episodes of Wishbone. And the thing was, the sets, the, they, we had two art directors on Wishbone. One was primarily contemporary. One was primarily what they call fantasy or period. The fantasy and period changed every week. Uh, for the most part, the contemporary sets of the contemporary era of the show, as you know, it ran in a parallel time sequence. Those sets, while they didn't change much, they were always growing and expanding. So it was almost a constant build on either end of the uh, art direction spectrum. Uh, we had a huge crew. It was an art director's uh, <laughs> dream and nightmare, both at the same time. I mean, you would work hours that you never thought you would work, you know, um, ever. But uh, it did pay off. And, uh, you know, we won the Peabody Award. And I think we really proved that while it was considered and labeled young people's programming, it had a distinct appeal for adults, children, and people and readers of all ages. And it was not limited because of the quality of story of the classics. Stories have an appeal at any level that a reader or an observer enters into the realm of that story. It, a, a good story can appeal at all levels. And that's what we found. We did find that our, almost half of our audience was adult. And uh, that was rewarding because uh, so many children's programs are limited to just one genre of appeal, and that's kids, and parents are bored. But so many people through the years have walked up to me and said, thank you. Thank you for your devotion to reading literacy. Thank you for giving me a platform that I can share with my children. And it, it, that's very rewarding for me. No one ever did that for me for an Oliver Stone movie or a movie of the week that I did, but they did do that repeatedly for Wishbone through the years. Even now, <clears throat> I still wear my production jacket that has the Wishbone logo embroidered on the back, you know, and it looks like a high school football uh, jacket with the black leather sleeves and, you know, felt front, snap front. And people come up to me and go, what did you do? What, what was, what, is it coming back? You know, and I'm going, no, I don't think it's coming back, but they say, you know, it changed the course of the communication line with, within their family. Mm -hmm. And so do you still have the Emmys you won or those prominently displayed in your home? And what did those mean to you to receive those? Oh, they're around here somewhere. I don't know. I think one's a doorstop and, uh, you know, I thought about salt and pepper shakers. Um, now, of course, you know, they're here and <clears throat> um, I sometimes they're out. Sometimes I put them away on a trip just to kind of get them out of sight and, um, you know, and I forget to, to put them out. But what did it mean? Oh, golly. I don't know. I was, I remember the exhaustion of wishbone and how 
oh, I just was, you know, kind of literally mentally, physically spent after that duration. We would have times that we could get off from Wishbone in a hiatus time, but we would go right back full-fledged. Uh, it meant several things. It meant that my peers uh, approved of my work. Um, I was up, or we rather, I should say, uh, were up against, say, Rosie O'Donnell and her art direction staff uh, for one of the Emmys. And I was in New York and uh, at an after party, and uh, I was holding my Emmy, and she came up to me and said, what'd you win for? And I said, well, I won for our direction of Wishbone on PBS. And she looked around and she kind of lowered her voice and said, yeah, I would have voted for you too. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it's gratifying to know that hard work does pay off because when I was offered the job um, after having by someone who worked on uh, with me on the Oliver Stone movie I did, uh, they said it has it has Emmys written all over it, and uh, I, it's hard to imagine, you know, the pitch in New York. Well, there's this dog, and he talks, and he tells stories, and <laughs> you know, he he's Romeo, he's Doctor Jekyll, uh, he's Faust. You don't really think about that having clout until it is brought up to life, and um, winning the Emmys was, of course, a huge thrill. I mean, just a thrill. And it is kind of everything you think it is. The moment uh, as they're reading the nominees and, you know, you kind of go blank. And then suddenly you hear your name, our name, Wishbone. And I have a great picture that someone took. I, I was able to take oh, about eight of my friends from first grade through college TCU friend, uh, I mean, just different people with me to the Emmys in Los Angeles. And I have a great picture of us when they announced Wishbone was the winner, all of us coming like in slow motion, straight up out of our chair, just, you know, total exhilaration. But um, yeah, I mean, the Emmys are important. Uh, There's something that I look at that I did. Uh, I likened it one time to someone who asked me about it as walking down the hallway of life, sort of, you know, euphemistically, and you have it, you carry it for a while, then you put it on a shelf, but you can always turn around and look at it down, <clears throat> down that hallway. Uh, but it's not something that you continue to carry, but you're always proud. You're always happy to have people have their picture made with it. It's their you know, over at your house and, you know, so forth. So uh, it, it, it was a great thing. It really was, especially the Peabody Award. After serving as an art director, Barry decided to host his own show, an interview show called The Very Barry Show. Well, uh, you know how things, life changes and morphs, and you don't know really how it happened, except suddenly there you are. Well, I had all the time of doing wishbones, I was also interviewing people on the television and uh, I did a show called the state of the art and I would do shows from the museums. I, from the Kimball, from the museum of modern art of Fort Worth um, and uh, the Eamon Carter. And so, you know, 
it was just a part of me that was still yet unexplored that I knew very much was there. The art design and art direction for television just had a quicker jump start than my interviewing. And I started with the state of the art, a regional uh, cable show that had quite a following. Actually, I found out. And I hosted, for example, the bar, the billion-dollar Barnes collection of art of Impressionism that was out of Marion, Pennsylvania. And this show was taken on the road to six international museums around the world, and the Kimball was one. And I was the only one given permission by the Barnes Foundation to photograph these paintings on video. And I did an hour special. I interviewed the curators of the Kimball, uh, Kimball Fortson Wynn, who part of the family and on the board of directors helped bring the show to Fort Worth. Uh, one of the greatest, the biggest uh, shows of impressionism that this part of North Texas has ever seen, worth over a billion dollars. And uh, I interviewed students, art students, children, seeing art for the first time and what they thought. Uh, so it was sort of this eclectic blend of opinions and people um, giving their, their impression of impressionism. <laughs> so I just kept working with that. And some friends approached me about just doing a regional television show. And they named it, I didn't, I swear, uh, they named it the Barry Barry Show, and I just thought, well, what governs the choices on this? And I decided it's anything that intrigues me, that I like, I find enjoyable, and find uh, newsworthy, you might say, uh, for my audience. And it's always important to remember that it's you've got to play to your audience. If you're, I interviewed George Bush, George W. Bush. I interviewed Sid Charisse, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly's dance partner from MGM. Uh, I interviewed the governor of Mississippi, uh, who was governor during all of the riots of the 60s. Um, I've interviewed, oh, I've just interviewed so many people uh, that are stars. And while I tend to kind of get out there with technique and like some uh, critical kind of views of how actors work, what motivates them or artists. I have to remember that I'm playing for an audience that may not know or understand what we're talking about. So you walk a good line. I will ask a question, for example, that I already know the answer to, but I ask it for my audience. But I tell you, the, um, gr the greatest thing um, about interview is that you learn more than you ask and you have a moment of kind of hearing people say for the first time wow i never thought about that about myself before or i've never thought about that question sid charise did that for me she entered the interview um hesitant came out like glowing uh, Sean Scully, considered one of the top 15 painters in the world. Uh, he has his own room at the Modern Museum in Fort Worth. And he, Sean Scully, entered this uh, interview uh, saying, 
to me, or I could feel it from him. I don't want to be interviewed by you. You're a Texan. You don't know anything. And by the time it was over, he asked me if this, uh, he could get tapes of this interview to represent him when people wanted to know more about him. Oh, wow. And you were also the head judge for the 2005 Miss America pageant. So how were you chosen for that? And what did your duties <laughs> include for that? Well, you know, somebody's got to do it. So <laughs> I, 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 I anted up and said, okay, I'll do my volunteerism. Um, I had been involved a little bit with the Miss America program uh, previous to the Emmys and so forth. And they had asked me to judge Miss America back in 1993. Uh, and I was busy starting Wishbone. I was also, after Wishbone, started taking care of my mother who needed some pretty intense attention. And I told them, I said, I couldn't do it for the obvious reasons of these prior commitments. And so um, after they said, whenever you're done and you feel free, uh, let us know. And I did in 2003, I called them and said, everything is now settled and I'm free to judge. And so they assigned me to judge Miss America 2005. Uh, of course, by then I had won the Emmy. So uh, they like that. They, they choose someone from major fields uh, in the in the U.S., like they chose, uh, they always choose someone in sports. Originally on my panel uh, was Mark Cuban. He dropped out uh, and was replaced by Phil Maloof, owner of the Sacramento Kings. The sports, Broadway, fashion, um, Nikki Taylor, the I guess you'd call her supermodel, was on my panel. Uh, a former Miss America is always on the panel. Kelly Cash. Um, Miss America of, uh, I think, 1987, 86. And so I, they looked at me as television. And in fact, the year before I was, I'd already been scheduled to judge in, two, this, in 2004, 2005 pageant. Uh, they called me at the last minute the year before to replace uh, Greta Von Sestren, uh, the CNN anchor that was going to cover uh, one of the, I think, the Afghan war. And uh, they said, could you come in the last minute if she decides to drop out? And, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So I said, yes, but I was glad that she went ahead and did it. And I was able to stay. Uh, the Miss America program um, is one of the largest, if not the largest, scholarship provider for women in the world at a tune of about $40, $45 million a year in various kinds of scholarships. And therefore, I felt it was worthy to become a part of it. Uh, they liked, they told me they chose me to be head judge at Miss America because of my interview skills and um, just to kind of keep a cap on what all was going on. They take it very seriously. Uh, you don't want to screw up. I was there eight days in Atlantic City. And it, while great and fun and honorable, you might say, it was intense. And there's no other way to put it. I felt a great burden of responsibility uh, because they did say that uh, because it's live broadcast on ABC on the final night, they said if there's a tie that's not breakable really quickly, head judge decides who wins. And whew, I just was like praying that there would be no tie. And there wasn't. And uh, a tremendous winner we had that year, uh, Miss Alabama. 
who is now a doctor uh, specializing in oncology, prenatal oncology, hematology, uh, proof positive of the worthiness of the educational system and value of the Miss America system. Aside from his interesting professional career, Barry also has a very interesting family tree as one of his ancestors is Sam Houston. Well, I don't know that there's a whole lot personally to tell. I grew up always hearing uh, that I was related to Sam Houston, and I have looked it up on, you know, family tree charts, and, you know, there it is. And um, it's, a, it's a great honor to be associated in any way with Sam Houston. Um, I certainly uh, am the diminutive version of him since he was, what, 6'8", and uh, I, I, it's just a kind of a fun thing to say. Uh, like I grew up always hearing that my great-grandmother delivered Eamon Carter the night he was born in Crafton, Texas, in December of 1879. Hmm. And she told, often told the story of delivering this baby that grew up to be Eamon, well, he was always Eamon Carter, but he grew up to be the philanthropist that, of course, we all know and um, are so grateful to for his generosity in many areas of our lives. And uh, so, you know, it's like, uh, it's almost like guilt by association. Yes, Sam Houston, yes, uh, you know, Eamon Carter in a way, but I, I really did nothing to achieve it except just be here, you know. <laughs> And you currently reside in Burleson, and, and I believe I, I uh, you reside in a very historic house. So what makes your house so special? Well, uh, I live in what is called the Renfro Clark Phillips home. Uh, it is a late Queen Anne Victorian from 1894. Uh, it sits in what is called O-Town in Burleson. It is Burleson's only Texas historic landmark. And it's had a historic marker um, signifying its historic value for the last 50 years. However, last April, uh, with a declaration from the governor of Texas proclaiming it Renfro Clark Day in Texas, uh, the house was given a new marker, uh, a, one of those really big ones, you know, and it sits now out in front of the house. And um, I do my best to let the people of my community enjoy it. Uh, to come in when it's appropriate and clubs, scout groups come through every now and then. Uh, wedding pictures get made in the front yard. And, you know, it, it, I try to let it serve the community as much as I can. Uh, the house is not huge, I don't think, by any means, but it's, it's quaint and it's special in its appointments of both design and uh, historical significance. And living in a Burleson, how often do you get a chance to come back to the campus here at TCU? And what are your impressions of how it's changed since you first came as a student? Well, um, I've been back, of course, many times for many different reasons. I've been a speaker several times in film classes and so forth. Um, and I come back to TCU just whenever there's, there are events that I'm participating, can participate in. Uh, in 2000, I served on the Chancellor's Committee on the Future, which was hand-selected alumni were invited back to uh, serve on a committee chaired by Bob Schaefer of CBS News in New York. And we uh, talked, we brainstormed about what we wanted to see 
to make TCU uh, cutting edge uh, in step with what now we had seen in the rest of the world. So that got me uh, very much involved again with old friends as well as being a part of what I see now that the vision we had then has now come to fruition in so many different ways. Of course, the campus has just bloomed with uh, new buildings and uh, just a great look to it. Of course, Eamon Carter Stadium uh, is just incredible. And uh, so whether I come back for football games or for a class reunion or for anything that pertains to TCU, I always enjoy it. I'll I'll wrap up with this. How do you feel your time at TCU contributed to the life you've had? Well, um, I think TCU gave me, uh, knowing that they wanted me to go there, that they were going to help pay for me to be there, uh, really. It gives you, when I started at 17, uh, a sense of, wow, you know, I'm more than I maybe I think I am, and people think I'm worthy. Um, TCU gave me a sense of stability. Um, I look back on those times as while maybe in politics of our country, it was a rough time. I felt the security of TCU. Um, I serve now on the accrediting council for independent colleges in Washington, D.C. On the de- with the Department of Education. I accredit colleges in film and design, uh, graphic design and interior design. And they, as they send me all over the country and uh, even they've sent me to Lima, Peru. And I think of TCU sometimes in those situations where I, I think, you know, I see who I was as a young student in the eyes of these people that I'm interviewing at these college campuses now. And then I see who I am now. And while there's a definite translation, uh, you know that your translation is not always predictable. And it's, it's the wonder and it's the thrill of the surprises that come along uh, that, and the people you meet. For me, it's all wrapped up in the people that I met at TCU, the people I've met since, I think TCU gave me a great, oh, what do I call it? A great groundwork for giving me a sense that I really could go do whatever it is I want to do. The only stopping block would be me. And uh, my years in Los Angeles, after right after TCU, echoed, uh, you know, the education that I got there, being well-rounded. Uh, certainly, my work in interview on television has done the same. Um, I had a, you know, I had good English teachers at TCU, and you know, it all adds up to a composite. Uh, it, you can't put your finger on really any one thing, but I do know that when I go back to TCU to speak <clears throat> in the film department, that I do tell them, you know, it wasn't that long ago, really that I was sitting where you were and you, and I was looking at someone talking to me thinking, how in the world, how in the world do you do it? How did you get there? But persistence, belief in yourself, some trust in other people and some good luck all adds up. 
Well, this has been very informative, and we thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us today. Enjoyed it totally. Any time. You know, we can do part two sometime. All right. Thank you to KTCU and student Jake Hook for the assisting and the editing of this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Frog for Life podcast. If you or a friend or family member would like to share your story of your life since graduation, please contact us on social media or leave us a comment on our SoundCloud channel. We look forward to sharing the next story of how horn frogs are changing the world.